Chapter Thirty Nine of the Secret Service by Albert Richardson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Maria Casper. Part Four The Escape. Chapter Thirty Nine A good wit will make use of anything. I will turn diseases to commodity. King Henry the Fourth. We were constantly trying to escape. During the last fifteen months of our imprisonment, I think there was no day when we had not some plan which we hoped soon to put in execution. We were always talking and theorizing about the subject. Indeed, we theorized too much. We magnified obstacles. We gave our keepers credit for greater shrewdness and closer observation than they were capable of. We would not start until all things combined to promise success. Therefore, as the slow months wore away, again and again we saw men of less capacity but greater daring escape by modes which had appeared to us utterly chimerical and impracticable. Fortune, too, persistently baffled us. At the vital moment when freedom seemed just within our grasp, some unforeseen obstacle always intervened to foil our plans. Still, assuming a confidence we did not feel, we daily promised each other to persist until we gained our liberty or lost our lives. After the malignity which the Richmond authorities had manifested toward us, escape seemed a thousandfold preferable to release by exchange. I should hardly dare to estimate the combined length of tunnels in which we were concerned. They were always discovered, usually on the eve of completion. My associate was wont to declare that we should never escape in that way, unless we constructed an underground road to Knoxville, two hundred miles as the bird flies. Even if we passed the prison walls, the chance of reaching our lines seemed almost hopeless. We were in the heart of the Confederacy. During the ten months we spent in Salisbury, at least seventy persons escaped, but nearly all were brought back, though a few were shot in the mountains. We knew of only five who had reached the north. Junius, certain to see the gloomy side of every picture, frequently said, to walk the same distance in Ohio or Massachusetts, where we could travel by daylight upon public thoroughfares, stop at each village for rest and refreshment, and sleep in warm beds every night, we should consider a severe hardship. Think of this terrible tramp of two hundred miles by night, in midwinter, over two ranges of mountains, creeping stealthily through the enemy's country, weak, hungry, shelterless, can any of us live to accomplish it? When, at last, we did essay it, the journey proved nearly twice as long, and infinitely severer than even he had conceived. Among the officers of the prison there were three stanch Union men, a lieutenant, a surgeon, and Lieutenant John R. Wellborn. They were our devoted friends, their homes, families, and interests were in the South. Attempting to escape, they were likely to be captured and imprisoned. Remaining, they must enter the army in some capacity, 
and they preferred wearing swords to carrying muskets. Hundreds of loyalists were in the same predicament, and adopted the same course. These gentlemen were of service to us in a thousand ways. They supplied us with money, books, and provisions, bore messages between us and other friends in the village, and kept us constantly advised of military and political events known to the officials but concealed from the public. Lieutenant Wellborn came to the garrison only about a month before our departure. He belonged to a secret organization known as the Sons of America, instituted expressly to assist Union men, whether prisoners or refugees, in escaping to the North. Its members were bound by solemn oath to aid brothers in distress. They recognized each other by the signs, grips, and passwords common to all secret societies. We soon discovered that Wellborn was not only of the order, but a very earnest and self-sacrificing member. He was singularly daring. At our first stolen interview, he said, "'You shall be out very soon, at all hazards.' Had he been detected in aiding us, it would have cost him his life, but he was quite ready to peril it. Beyond the inner line of sentinels, which was the much more difficult one to pass, stood a rebel hospital, where all medicines for the garrison were stored. When we were placed in charge of the Union hospitals, Mr. Davis was furnished with a pass to go out for the medical supplies, it was the inflexible rule of the prison that all persons having such passes should give parole not to escape. Davis would have assumed no such obligation, but in the confusion incident to the great influx of prisoners of war, and because it was the business of several rebel officers, the commandant, the medical director, and the post-adjutant, instead of the duty of one man to see it done, he was never asked for the parole. A few days later, the prison authorities gave similar passes to Junius and to Captain Thomas E. Wolfe of Connecticut, master of a merchant vessel, who had been a prisoner nearly as long as we. We attempted to convince them, through several deluded rebel attachés, that it was essential to the proper conduct of the medical department that I, too, should be supplied with a pass. Doubtless we should have succeeded in time, had not an incident occurred to hasten our movements. On Sunday, December 18th, we learned that General Bradley T. Johnson of Maryland had arrived, and on the following day would supersede Major G. as commandant of the prison. Johnson was a soldier who knew how business should be done, and he would doubtless put a stop to this loose arrangement about passes. Not a moment was to be lost and we determined to escape that very night. I engaged several prisoners, without informing them for what purpose, in copying from my hospital books the names of the dead. I felt that to relieve friends at home we ought to make an effort to carry through this information, as long as there was the slightest possibility of success. My own books contained only the names of the prisoners who died in the hospitals, outdoor patients, those deceased in their own quarters or in no quarters whatever, were recorded in a separate book by the rebel clerk in the outside hospital. I dared not send to him for their names on a Sunday, lest it should excite his suspicion. 
but the list from my own records was appalling. It comprised over fourteen hundred prisoners, deceased within sixty days, and showed that they were now dying at the rate of thirteen per cent a month on the entire number, a rate of mortality which would depopulate any city in the world in forty-eight hours, and send the people flying in all directions as from a pestilence. Yet when those prisoners came there, they were young and vigorous, like our soldiers generally in the field. There was not a sick or wounded man among them. It was a fearful revelation of the work which cold and starvation had done. When I put on extra underclothing for the possible journey, it was without conscious expectation, almost without any hope whatsoever, of success. I had assumed the same garments, for the same purpose, at the very least thirty times before, within fifteen months, only to be disappointed, and that was enough to dampen the most sanguine temperament. We believed that our attempt, if detected, would be made the excuse for treating us with peculiar rigor, but in the event of discovery we were likely to be sent back to our own quarters for the night, and not ironed or confined in a cell until the next morning. Lieutenant Wellborn was on duty that day. We made him privy to our plan. He agreed that, if it proved unsuccessful, to smuggle in muskets for us, and we proposed to wrap ourselves in grey blankets, slouch our hats down over our eyes, and pass out at midnight as rebel soldiers when he relieved the guard. Once in the camp he could conduct us outside. On that Sunday evening, half an hour before dark, the latest moment at which the guards could be passed, even by authorized persons, without the countersign, Messrs. Brown, Wolfe, and Davis went outside as if to order their medical supplies for the sick prisoners. As they passed in and out a dozen times a day, and their faces were quite familiar to the sentinels, they were not compelled to show their passes, and Junius left his behind with me. A few minutes later, taking a long box filled with bottles in which the medicines were usually brought, and giving it to a little lad who assisted me in my hospital duties, I started to follow them. As if in great haste we walked rapidly toward the fence, while leaning against trees or standing in the hospital doors, half a dozen friends looked on to see how the plan worked. When we reached the gate I took the box from the boy, and said to him, of course for the benefit of the sentinel, I am going outside to get these bottles filled. I shall be back in about fifteen minutes, and I want you to remain right here to take them and distribute them among the hospitals. Do not go away now. The lad, understanding the matter perfectly, replied, Yes, sir, and I attempted to pass the sentinel by mere assurance. I had learned long before how far a man may go, even in captivity, by sheer native impudence, by moving straight on without hesitation, with a confident look, just as if he had a right to go and no one had any right to question him. Several times, as already related, I saw captives who had procured citizens' clothes thus walk past the guards in broad daylight out of rebel prisons. I think I could have done it on this occasion, but for the fact that it had been tried successfully twice or thrice, 
and the guard severely punished. The sentinel stopped me with his musket, demanding, "'Have you a pass, sir?' "'Certainly I have a pass,' I replied, with all the indignation I could assume. "'Have you not seen it often enough to know it by this time?' Apparently a little confounded, he replied modestly, "'Probably I have, but they are very strict with us, and I was not quite sure.' I gave to him this genuine pass, belonging to my associate, Headquarters, Confederate States, Military Prison, Salisbury, North Carolina, December 5, 1864. Junius H. Brown, citizen, has permission to pass the inner gate of the prison to assist in carrying medicines to the military prison hospitals until further orders. J. A. Fuqua, Captain and Assistant Commandant of the Post. We had speculated for a long time about my using a spurious pass, and my two comrades had prepared several with a skill and exactness which proved that if their talents had been turned in that direction they might have made first-class forgers. But we finally decided that the veritable pass was better, because if the guard had any doubt about it, I could tell him to send it into headquarters for examination and the answer returned would, of course, be that it was genuine. But it was not submitted to any such inspection. The sentinel spelled it out slowly, then folded and returned it to me, saying, "'That pass is all right. I know Captain Fuqua's handwriting. Go on, sir. Excuse me for detaining you.' I thought him excusable under the circumstances, and walked out. My great fear was that during the half-hour which must elapse before I could go outside the garrison, I might encounter some rebel officer or attaché who knew me. Before I had taken ten steps, I saw, sauntering to and fro on the piazza of the headquarters building, a deserter from our service named Davidson, who recognized and bowed to me. I thought he would not betray me, but was still fearful of it. I went on, and a few yards farther, coming toward me in that narrow lane where it was impossible to avoid him, I saw the one rebel officer who knew me better than any other, and who frequently came into my quarters, Lieutenant Stockton, the post-adjutant. Observing him in the distance, I thought I recognized in him that old ill-fortune which had so long and steadfastly baffled us but I had the satisfaction of knowing that my associates were on the lookout from a window, and if they saw me involved in any trouble, they would at once pass the outer gate, if possible, and make good their own escape. When we met, I bade Stockton good evening, and talked for a few minutes upon the weather or some other subject in which I did not feel any profound interest. Then he passed into headquarters, and I went on, Yet a few yards farther I encountered a third rebel, named Smith, who knew me well, and whose quarters inside the garrison were within fifty feet of my own. There were not half a dozen Confederates about the prison who were familiar with me, but it seemed as if at this moment they were coming together in a grand convention. Not daring to enter the rebel hospital, where I was certain to be recognized, I laid down my box of medicines behind a door, and sought shelter in a little outbuilding. 
while i remained there waiting for the blessed darkness i constantly expected to see a sergeant with a file of soldiers come to take me back into the yard but none came it was rare good fortune stockton smith and davidson all knew if they had their wits about them that i had no more right there than in the village itself i suppose their thoughtlessness must have been caused by the peculiarly honest and business-like look of that medicine box End of chapter 39